pillar of our show, the Parlay in All Blue, is to connect African peoples throughout the diaspora. Our show is informed by the quote from Dr. John Henry Clark that says, Africans in the United States must remember that slave ships brought no West Indians, no Caribbeans, no Jamaicans, or Trinidadians, or Barbadians to this hemisphere. The slave ships brought only African people. Now we can add to that Cubans and Haitians and Guadalupians. So your fly vacation spot, the black people that you see there, their ancestors like mine were brought here from Africa to work at making European capitals rich and making European countries rich. And they're still rich to this day. So that's that. Of course, I'm an American citizen, a citizen of the United States. I'm a part of the lineage of Africans and Americans that created jazz. And through our belief in the words that all men are created equal, my people fought for civil rights and have given the United States the opportunity to become a true, functioning, inclusive democracy. Now let's see if the January 6th insurrectionists and the Supreme Court wants that to happen as well. More on that on another episode. Having said that, the black people in the United States have common ancestry and experience and culture and current realities with black people in Canada, Ghana, Brazil, and Mexico. Our guest this week, Abad Leva, shines light on the history and culture of Afro-Mexicans, black people in Mexico, Africans in Mexico. The port in Veracruz brought in more enslaved people from Africa through their port than the ports of Charleston and Savannah combined. And then you talk about black people coming to Mexico also through Acapulco, and then from the southern bound Underground Railroad. Mexico has a lot of black people. Bob will also give us insight, unique insight, unique firsthand insight on what immigration looks like in the United States for many of our Mexican brothers and sisters, whether they be black, or brown or a mix of both. Amen and I ain't mad. We hope you enjoyed this episode and I want to thank Abad again for his time and appearance and thank you for joining us here on the Parlay in All Blue. Abad Leva, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. We are so happy to have you. How are you? Pretty good, my friend. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm really happy to be here. Really grateful for the opportunity, my friend. It's, this is something new for me, but, so, but I'm excited to be here. Listen, it's new for me. This whole thing is new for me. And I, I tell people that as a part of the journey that I'm on and using my voice and time in this way is that our time to to do things is divine. It's in divine order, and the time is now to do it. And so we're in the right place at the right time. Uh, Stevie Wonder in his song, As, has a line that says, God knew exactly where he wanted you to be placed. So, you know, the time is, the time is right. The time is right. And the conversation is right. Absolutely. I have a question for you. Are there Black people in Mexico? <laughs> Oh my God, that's a funny question, huh? <laughs> but I never thought it was like a funny question, but it is, you know, of course there is black people in Mexico. You know, if we just go through the basic history of slavery, 
we realized, for example, that there are what four million African people that were taken into uh, Brazil. Yeah, four million, and then five millions, five five and a half millions went to Mexico and the Caribbean. Yeah, five and a half million. And the most representative of the community of the black diaspora in this land is Afro-Americans, people born in the United States, black people born in the United States. Those are the representatives. But you know how many enslaved came to this country, to this part of the land? Only uh, 300,000. So 4 million in Brazil, 5.5 million in Mexico and the Caribbean, and only 300,000 in the United States. And the most representative of the diaspora is is you guys right here, you know, which is amazing. That means that we're ignoring or we don't know about the majority of us, you know, and that's a whole universe. Yeah, no, you you you're so right, and I I want to dig into that a little bit. I I think people, you know, because of the United States's position with the media and other things, there's a, a large projection of black Americans across the world. The other thing is, is that, you know, through civil rights and other things, there's, there's been a lot of, a lot of attention paid to being outwardly black or what have you. And some of that has to do with how the different countries adopted, you know, their policy about what does it mean to be Colombian for a minute, or what does it mean to be Brazilian or Mexican and, sort of erasure of cultures or what have you. But but to your point, and I want to get into the ways that Africans got to to Mexico. And I will start with with one, just just for the people in the audience to back onto your or to underscore your point, is that the port of Veracruz received more enslaved Africans than the ports of Charleston, which is the biggest one in the, in the United States, Mobile and Savannah combined. I mean, that's just Veracruz. So anyway, so I gave away one of those things. But so how, how did how did Africans get into to Mexico? So, yeah, that's and I would love that you put it in perspective as well, because people need to realize how big the diaspora is, you know, and how important the influence is, is and it's to, to recognize all of this. So black people came to Mexico through Veracruz, you know, and in Veracruz, they were more into like slave conditions because history is not the same. We didn't go through the same things. We didn't experience the same things. We didn't face the same people as well, you know. So people that came through Veracruz, there's a lot of cattle ranching that they're going through and also uh, sugarcane fields. And in those conditions, they were living very like, American slavery, that kind of society or reality they were facing in Veracruz. They were very much, you know, taken advantage of, abused, killed, all of this everywhere. But in in, in this area of Mexico, it was more like this is the reality. But also, let's not forget about Yanga. That cruel reality brings into history of Yanga, you know, the first men that fights for freedom is not the first revolt. It's not even the first free black town in the Americas, in the brown continent, but it's the second one. But th- that kind of condition, it, you know, pushes people to rebel, right? And we have Yanga in Veracruz, who is not only fighting for 
the freedom of his people, but also fighting for the freedom of indigenous people. So that's really important. We never saw each other, indigenous and black, as enemies or as I'm going to conquer you or I'm better than you. We didn't have that. We had conflicts later. But we, we'll get to that point. But Janga is fighting for his freedom and the indigenous people in Veracruz as well. They win. Then there's also in Acapulco, the Guerrero, the state of Guerrero. Acapulco became a super important port because there is also the uh, commerce with Philippines and, and China and all of this is coming through Acapulco. So Acapulco is influenced heavily in many different ways. There's a lot of slaves that are coming to Acapulco. There's a lot of people coming through the boats as well into Acapulco, you know, and it becomes a very kind of like a black place to be, Acapulco. Many of the slaves, just like indigenous people did before, they escape into the mountains. They escape down to the south. That's why if you go from Acapulco down south, that's where you're going to find like the biggest concentration of not only indigenous people, but also black people. So we black people imitated indigenous people when they got to Acapulco and they say, like, we can be free here. They went down. They also were taken down south by slave owners, but the conditions were different. This, this was more cattle ranching, and it was, this was more uh, mining as well. And black people in this side of the country, they were more like friends with the Spaniards. So they were more like supervisors. They were, they were not abused. For example, there was an army of black people in Guerrero, like before slavery was abolished. They were free. You know, they, they were able to marry indigenous, indigenous women or indigenous men, indigenous people. They were able to start having concentrations of their own towns. You know, you can go to Mexico today and it's like, I don't know, it's like Oakland, black people everywhere, you know? Right. And, and so in this part of Guerrero, in this part of the country in Guerrero, people are free. Black people are mixed with, you know, like owning land and making political decisions and thriving. You know, there's kind of like race became kind of like blinded by everybody's just thriving. Everybody's participating on 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 the liberation of the country, on the formation of what we know now today as Mexico. It was the new Spain, you know. So those are the main sources of the main entrances into Mexico by black people and later then when the united states takes over california texas and all of this texas emancipation the mexican government is very liberal at the beginning the, the independence you know is, there's uh, vicente guerrero vicente guerrero is afro-mexican he's the second president of mexico he was afro-mexican there is jose maria morelos big hero in mexican independence and the mexican constitution as well there's many people that are black and, and indigenous, or they're mixed and, and mostly, you know, like Afro something, Afro Mexican, Afro whatever. But we were mixed, and politically we were we were strong. Culturally we were strong, and the United States fears all of this, and that's when Texas emancipates. You know, Texas was, I mean, a slave owner's paradise, and. They emancipate from Mexico because of all of these liberal ideas, these crazy ideas in Mexico that everybody was going to be free, you know. And there's a lot of people that come escaping from the United States. We're going to talk about that a little later, I think, on the railroad to, to the south, you know, to Mexico. 
And that's like more like in the 1800s. So that's kind of like the migrations that happened you know, of black people into Mexico. Later, it's open, right? Later, uh, Cubans come, uh, many people from Haiti, like everybody's there. So what you're describing is a, a brew of sort of three. You have the Spanish bringing enslaved people over to what was then New Spain through Veracruz. I didn't know until sort of interacting with you about Acapulco, which I guess then is a, a trading post of what you talk about, a port of trading goods between the Eastern world, then the Underground Railroad, and then the diaspora movement of people from Haiti and Cuba, what have you. But I, I want to dig on something that you talked about, and I think it's, it's two things I want to make clear or just talk about for a minute. You talked about Yanga and you talked about people escaping. And I want to talk about the Maroons. What we call, here's the thing, is in Jamaica, in Haiti, they call them Maroons, right? In Colombia, Palenque. What were the Maroon sort of of people escaping slavery in Mexico? What were those areas called? We were Cimarrones. Cimarrones, okay. That comes from Maroons, Cimarron. Okay, yeah. And also this comes from like the Mascogos that escape from, from Florida, that go up Florida up to uh, Texas and then down to Mexico. The Seminole people. It's, yep. It's mm. something about the, the Cimarrones as well. Like the, the same war is kind of like decomposed and interpreted in different ways according to the region. So in my region, in Mexico, we call cimarrones as well. In Mexico, we call cimarrones any, anything that is kind of like something that is wild, and then you domesticate this animal, and then the animal is not grateful, and he runs back into wild wilderness. That's <laughs> what it means to be a cimarron. It's somebody that really? he tried to domesticate, but damn, he didn't want to. <laughs> and, you know, that's important because the, the part of especially what happens in the United States, there's this um, presentation of sort of the happy slave that the that it wasn't that bad and the slaves were happy. But they're called different things in Brazil, Quilombos and in New Orleans and around Louisiana. They're discovering that there were many sort of maroon colonies of escaped slaves. And even there's a tradition in New Orleans, of what they call the Black Mardi Gras Indians. And what happens here is is that these are Black people that wear sort of beaded costumes and masks, very similar to honoring their West African tradition. You will see very similar things in terms of what happens today in Cameroon or in, um, in Ghana or in Ivory Coast. Same thing, same dances, but they take the time to honor the Indians or indigenous, and that's why they call them black Indians, because it was the indigenous people that took the escaped slaves in. And so during the Mardi Gras season, and right now during Jazz Fest in New Orleans, a lot of them are are there. So that's very interesting about the maroon colonies. I want to ask you one other thing, though, just a little bit more about Yanga. You mentioned Yanga. Who is Yanga again? Yanga is, is an enslaved African. He's been captured in Africa. He's been taken into Mexico. He's uh, landing in Veracruz. 
he's immediately, you know, right away when he's landing in Veracruz, he's already kind of like, we're going to revolt. You know, this is not going to happen. So it starts happening right away. So like seven years later, that's when the revolution starts in Veracruz. And he is the, he free his people, basically. He's the, this is the free, the first free black town in, in, in what we know today as Mexico. There's other countries, there's other, other places like in Colombia. Yeah. Where it also happened, it happened like 15 years before Yanga or 20 years before Yanga. So no, that tells you that our people, when they were coming, like we always knew, we always knew this was wrong. You know, we always knew like, we don't deserve this. Yeah. We always got it very clear. So that, what you were saying earlier, like the, the happiest slave, like, oh, we always knew. Yeah, and, you know, just from a history standpoint, there's Yanga, who literally through your work on social media, <laughs> thank you for this, I didn't have any idea about, right? But you have Zumbi and Dandara, who are husband and wife in Brazil, did the same thing. You mentioned in Colombia, Benke Bihejos. I know I'm butchering the brother's name, but I'm doing the best I can. And then you you have Nanny, who's the leader, a woman female leader who's the leader of the Maroon colonies in, J- in Jamaica. And then we know in Haiti, you know, Toussaint Leavachora and Duty Bookman and what have you. So much and, and a big part of why and I wanted to have you on in this really important part of my, my mission and my ambition in, in doing this is, is, is not just telling Black stories and elevating Black voices in the United States, but making sure that we have a connection throughout the diaspora. So appreciate you telling us that. So in America, you can hear African roots and jazz and in blues, and then you can hear, you can see African cuisine surviving through sort of shrimp and grits and other things, and then the way we dance and what have you. How would, if I were to visit uh, Guerrero or Acapulco, how does sort of that African culture survive today? First, I want to say that, that, that with the, the comment that you were making is Benko's Bioho. Benko's Bioho, right. There you go. Name. It's important. Thank you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. also, let's not forget John Horst, which is the liberator of the people that come from the north into Mexico. That's another another person that is like heroic and important. One of the things that, that if you go to Mexico, if you go to, especially to Guerrero, Veracruz, you know, the big concentrations of the black diaspora in Mexico. Yeah. Anybody will tell you that there's a difference between indigenous and black people, even in indigenous people. Everybody knows this. We, we always say, if you want to eat fish, anything, you know, with, related to the ocean, you need to go with black people. Uh, if you want to uh-huh. eat, you know, like, corn and tacos and all of that, you need to go with indigenous people. But what I love is is just the mixing of the cultures, you know, the completely mixed. They can't emphasize enough that we have never seen each other as a, as, as I'm going to conquer you, yep. you know, or I'm going to, you know, it never was that. This is something beautiful about Mexico, the, the, the Afro-Mexican culture, is that, uh, that uh, it's not from Africa, it's not indigenous, it's Afro-Mexican. It's a new thing. It's a new thing just created from whatever came before and whatever they found in here and whatever they mixed up. 
and they name it a different thing, a new thing, a new the fruit and everything is, is completely Afro-Mexican. Like you won't find it in Africa. You won't find it in Mexico. You will find it with the Afro-Mexican community. Yeah. You know what, what you just, first off, culture travels through food. Uh, and I think people know that, but also intelligence travels through food because people have to know which, which spices go with which, which things will make you sick or what have you. And I can imagine that the Africans and the indigenous really getting together and understanding and, and not only just sort of bringing what they know to the table, but creating something that was better than before than it was by itself. Absolutely. What about in other ways, like in music or dance? When I was younger, when I was like 12, 11 years old, it was not cool to say that you were Afro-Mexican. You know, it was not cool to say like, Oh, I, I participate in this dancer. You know, it was not, it was not not nice. You know, people didn't didn't want to be related to these kind of cultures. You know, they didn't want to be close to it. It was people that like only myself. You know, that we were born in it, that we saw it as just part of our life that we participated in. But everybody else, even myself, I gotta confess this. Even myself, when I left my hometown and going went into the city, I tried to you know hide like how close I was to all of this, the, how in it I was. You know, I, was, I wanted to portray more myself as a, as a mestizo, you know, as a, a, as a mestizo, you know. What's mestizo? Mexico, once we get to independence, there's a, a lot of movement in Mexico and some crazy people that start thinking of like, we need to bring the country together. And how is that we're going to bring the country together? We're going to create a new race. And the new race was this, and there's even a book, and Mexican people know it, everybody has read this book that is called The Cosmic Race. And The Cosmic Race, it was just a designation from the gods that it was going to be like an amazing race. You know, it's a mix of European and indigenous. Yep. So all Mexico, the whole country of Mexico, we were made to believe that we were all mestizos. We were all Europeans and indigenous. And that was it. So when you have curly hair and a big nose and like super, really dark and you dance like this and you do things like this and you, and you see on, on, you know, like books at school and you're like, Benke, I don't look like that. And I don't, I don't have any of these things. So you, I remember me being like, but I want to be Mexican. You know, I'm, I'm Mexican. I want to be a mestizo. I want to, I wanted to identify as a mestizo. Thankfully, it never happened. You know, people never let me, never let me forget. They never let you. And so you you mentioned that that's really an, I I wanted to ask because I have seen more people, whether it's Colombian or Mexican or in Brazil, owning Afro sort of, Afro-Mexican or Mestizo, not, not Afro-Mestizo, I think that would be the term, and Afro-Colombian. And there's seeming to be this awakening. And what do you think is behind that? Because that's something that no matter when I talk to people throughout the diaspora, that sort of is a, a theme of, you know, growing up, I was just wanted to be Mexican or Brazilian or Colombian or what have you. And now people are embracing sort of the African piece. What do you think is behind that? 
my experience and I believe is that because we were never anything else. We just were missing the name. But we were always profiled, racially profiled as black or dark. Because, for example, the, 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 the places where we live in Mexico are Guerrero and Veracruz, some of the poorest states in the country. You know, Oaxaca as well, really poor uh, 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 state. If anytime I came out of my hometown into the city, yeah, I would be asked, like, what are you from? Or show me your passport. I didn't even have an ID, you know, and why would I carry a passport like in Mexico City? Right. And it was confusing. It was really, really confusing all the time. I remember, for example, before we were calling ourselves Afro-Mexicans, I remember walking to Mexico City and this policeman coming after me and telling me, like, oh, show me your ID, show me your passport, where are you from? And he would just didn't believe me that I was Mexican, you know? And I didn't understand why is that he just didn't believe me. I couldn't. I couldn't understand it. And then he said, there's no black people in Mexico. And I was like, who is black? Who is black? Like, I don't understand. And it took years. I, I moved to Chicago, you know, and, and watching TV, you know, here, American TV, with my dad's picture on the, uh, next to the TV and my mom, we all watching TV and I'm looking at my mom and looking at my dad. And I go, I again, say, my dad's black. And we were like, oh my God, you're right. But we never saw it. But we were always treated as if, as if we were. So it's, this time, like where communication is happening and people are coming out and saying, like, this is who I am and I'm not going to change it. You know, it's very empowering. And it's, it's also a decision from our side. Like, you don't want me to identify or you, you don't want me to say Afro-Mexican because you feel that I'm going to break the unity of Mexico. Yeah. But you treat me like you like black people are treated in the United States or black, black people are treated in other countries. You know, you treat me like that. And so we found power in it, you know, in this, this self-identifying of something that has been neglected and has been pushed out. When we had heroes, you know, we would have, like Mexico has a different history. We just had, like, we had a, a, a black president 200 years ago. We had black heroes, you know, we were very like into everybody's going to be free here and all of these things, you know, like just advance. And, and so it, it was reclaiming that. It was reclaiming what we knew. You know, it was crazy to me, for example, that I never knew about my roots, but I learned about European history. Yeah. A lot. Like more than I ever needed to. <laughs> You know, and I never knew about my own, own uh, ground where I was standing. It took a lot. So, so a couple of things I want to interject there is is that what you're very much describing now is is that you know you will have people saying all lives matter, for instance, but all lives can't matter if you can say if you are born black, you are two times as likely to catch COVID or you are likely to go to a highly segregated school. You're likely to have at least one relative who's going into incarceration or what have you. And so there are all of these things 
that say that all lives don't matter. And so when you say, hey, listen, in Black Lives Matter, it's almost very much like a plea when compared to Black power. It's almost like just saying, recognizes it's, it's it's the mildest thing it's not saying even what was you know in the 70s or 60s black power it's just black lives matter i matter just treat me human so it's interesting that you said that but you you mentioned the history vincente guerrero right was the second president and he was afro-mexican are mexican children taught that in school we're taught that he was vicente guerrero and the second president, and that was it. The fact that he was Afro-Mexican, that's new. That's really five years ago. Yeah. Like, completely new. Nobody talked about it. Even the paintings, even the pictures. And I remember when I was little, saying, thinking, well, I don't look mestizo, you know, but I, the closest that I look to somebody is, is Vicente Guerrero. Yeah. You know, like, the hair and all of that is, like, that's the only thing that I kind of, like, makes me feel like, oh, oh, I'm Mexican because I look like Vicente Guerrero. But it was White House. You know, it was not representative of who he was really, like the way he looked. You know, that was that happened later. That would happen just recently. And like him, many of the heroes, you know, many of the heroes was just like looking like, oh, this is also Afro-Mexican and this is also Afro-Mexican, you know? So that's that's what it is. Yeah, so I, w- I will tell you, you know, listen, and, and it's not certainly like definitely the United States as a whole doesn't have all of this figured out. And certainly black Americans don't have all of the history figured out. It's just every day that something comes up and people are like, I never knew that. And I will tell you that even on the opposite end of who we choose to honor here in Atlanta, where I am, there's a street called Ponce de Leon. We call it Ponce. And when I say Ponce, that's if you if you move to Atlanta and call it Ponce de Leon, people are not going to know what you're talking about. They're talking about Ponce. Right. But there's a street named Ponce Ponce here in Atlanta, Ponce de Leon, named after someone who was on the second voyage with Christopher Columbus. He was a governor in both Puerto Rico and Florida. He committed genocide of the indigenous populations. He was a massive slave trader and plantation owner and someone who had mines, uh, mining minerals for the Spanish crown. And so it's not just who we choose not to honor, but how we don't tell the truth about who we're honoring. And I think somewhere all of this anti-CRT stuff is is that I think once people start asking questions, they ask another question, and it points you to these things that people want to uh, to avoid it. I want to ask you, uh, switch gears for a minute. You have hundreds, thousands of followers and social media. You are a very prominent voice on a brown TikTok. I don't know if that's the actual name, but you are very prominent creator and voice there and have a number of pieces of content about Afro-Latino life or what have you. How did you how did you get to that journey? How did you start that? You know, earlier you we were saying that it's the right time or it's, I don't know, something like that. Yeah. I also feel like in life, you don't really waste time if you 
value your experience and your heritage and who you are, you know. I graduated, I came to the United States very young and started going to school right away, started going to like learning English and all of that. And I graduated as a filmmaker and I felt like, oh my God, what did I do? Like such such a uh, egocentric profession, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but then life itself took me into all of this journey, you know, I started doing documentaries and started documenting a lot of indigenous people. And I went to work for the government of Veracruz years ago. And we were doing this not really cool piece, but uh, but we were working in, in this this area and that took me to Yanga. That's how I discovered Yanga and that was the, the beginning. Okay. You know, and then I started digging more and then working on my in my state, like visiting there, it's like, oh my God, look at this. This is amazing. You know, and I started just remembering. Like the privilege, oh my God, I'm so thankful, you know, because for many years I felt like we were left behind, but it was not that. It was, we were preserved. Yeah. We were preserving everything, you know, like Mexico, for example, the sixties, we can talk about the sixties and the sixties for you might be pretty similar to the sixties in Mexico city, but yeah. very different to the sixties in, in Tecuanapa because we didn't even have roads get into Tequanapa, you needed to get into a horse, a horse or a donkey, and go for a, 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 a day, you know, to get to Tequanapa. So we were left, and we were indigenous and black living there, you know, expressing ourselves, discovering everything, inventing everything that you go through, like my, my childhood and everything, listening. I, I was a, a kid that was always asking questions, always asking, like, how does the town used to look like when you were little? And what house was built first? Who built it? All of those things, you know. Then I remember stories of my great-grandparents and my grandparents. I was lucky to even engage with my great-grandparents, you know, and to hear stories that I later realized that it's, holy cow, you know, it's, it's the base of, of, a, of a different kind of Mexico. So this journey as a filmmaker that took me into little small towns and indigenous communities, discovering, to discover the Afro communities, made me remember the stories of when I was little as well. You know, the wars that we used to, we still use, made me realize, for example, something that I never thought about, that when I was little, I didn't speak Spanish, perfect Spanish. My Spanish was completely mixed with Nahuatl. And with other Congolese words. Oh wow! Okay. And it's still today. It's not investigated. It's not researched in Mexico, but in the Costa Chica of Guerrero and Oaxaca, which also has another coincidence that the Costa Chica of Guerrero and Oaxaca used to be one single unit, one single country, one single nation. It was the Yope Nation, and the same territory then was later occupied and is today heavily occupied by black people, the same nation, the Jope nation, you know, it's just realizing, remembering and, and realizing like the privilege that I've had, how amazing the universe has been with me to take me into, into my journey, into my story, into my own, you know, like realizing who I am, why is that I'm treated this way, treated this way in the United States by the police, you know, by white people, but not also, also 
by Mexican people. You know how Mexicans see me, saw me here in the United States. I heard Mexicans saying, saying like, oh, look at that black man. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it was like, what the heck? What black man? And you're realizing like, it's me. Right, it's right. Me. And listening, like realizing like, what the? Yeah, yeah. My people, you know, like, I can tell you stories. And it's, so it's, it's, it's been a privilege, you know, it's, it's been a, a privileged life to being neglected by the government and to be able to preserve all these stories and then to be taken by life, by, by life itself into discovering, visiting these places, you know? Yeah. Let me, let me ask you this and, and thank you for that. How has your, your film work and the content that you create been received by Mexican people? And I also want to hear about, you know, just in other countries in Latin America, because a part of your, your journey is telling stories not just about Afro Mexicans or but also in the Dominican and and you mentioned in Colombia and the Palenques or what have you. How's the content and your your work received by other people? Mostly, I honestly have had like a really good experience, really a lot of support, especially. And this is a reality on, on social media and also when I moved to the United States. Black people. Black people embrace me like, oh, so beautifully. Like, yeah, honestly, that who made me go viral at the beginning, it was black people. Yeah. I saw it. I was like, oh, my God, look at all these black people following me, you know. Honestly, this is, this is my story. This is my, my, my experience. But if we go to like Mexico, I always find comments or Latin America, the brown continent. I always find comments to like denying, saying like, oh, this doesn't happen in Mexico. Oh, we don't do this in Mexico. Oh, no, we don't call each other Afro nothing. Or We're all Mexicans. Yeah. It's the same story, right? It's the same story, but the treatment is not the same. Data shows that it's not the same. You know, we're not all Mexicans. There are white Mexicans, there are mestizo Mexicans, there's black Mexicans, there's indigenous Mexicans, and data says that wealth, education, and health are based, like like consciously based on race. Yeah. Otherwise, you cannot explain why is that everywhere black people is going through like poverty and not health services and not nothing, you know, not nothing to advance. We have to do it ourselves. And so I always say, like, well, that, it, it exists. It's, it's there. With other countries as well, Dominican Republic, for example, when I did that and I said something about, like, Dominicans are black, whew, I got a bunch of mes- messages, lots of messages. No, we're not. Yeah. No, we're not black. And, like, they will look black. But, you know, I understand a little bit because that also comes with a realization. Like, it happened to me. I always knew we always talk about our hair yeah. or, you know, black characteristics, things in our in physical characteristics in ourselves. But we were always kind of like, oh, we're just Mexicans. You know, we even believed that we were darker because we were living closer to the ocean. Yeah. Like just that, like, oh no, we're Mexicans. We just live closer to the ocean and we're dark and our hair looks like that because, you know, and, 
people are really willing to, really fast to attach themselves. And I guess this is colonization. Colonization was not an act of love. People are willing to attach themselves to whiteness. Yeah. And to the obvious attachment that sometimes we have with blackness. You know, we can look really dark. Yeah. But we will fight you to the end about a great, great, great grandfather that came from Ireland. Or that's his great, 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 great grandmother that had green eyes. Oh, we preserve those stories. Yeah. We preserve them, we value them, we tell, say it every time we can. I know. And, and you know, so the, the thing is, is that I will say from my own journey, it took me to, in, as an adult, to start traveling in not just um, in sort of Latin America or in the Caribbean or what have you, but even going to Europe to begin to understand that colonization and sort of white supremacy and then the independence that came afterwards, it's kind of, uh, it, it's not kind of, it is a program. I mean, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the British, the French, the Dutch all shared about 80% of the same thing, you know, creating caste by sort of skin color, undereducating, overvaluing people. And then as independence comes, whether you are in Ohio or whether you are in Peru or whether you are in Cuba, the closest you get to, if you're in Cuba, the closest you get to looking Spanish, right? You know, the better off you do. The closest that you look to Scottish or Irish, the better off you do. And so I will confess that I, I used to have a lot of judgment around people that didn't want to embrace sort of their blackness or Afro or what have you. But I will tell you in my own journey and doing this work, I have a lot more grace and empathy for everyone who is caught in that because we're all caught in this same sort of misinformation and self-hate that colonization has done to everyone. So it's not just in Mexico. Everybody is in different phases of it, like you mentioned, the 1960s here or what have you. So there are different phases of it, but we've all been going through the same thing. I do want to ask you, though, a little bit more about you. So you came to, how old were you when you came to the United States? I was 19 years old. 19. So young. Yeah. And 19. And, and so you went to college and to film school here. Is that yeah. okay? And we talked about this off camera. And, and if you want to go into more of it, it's, it's up to you. I don't, I don't want to. But you talked about or we talked about being documented and undocumented and docking what all of those things means. Can you give a, our audience a little insight in terms of what those different stages of being in the country means or, or is like? Absolutely. I would say that I, I, I want to talk about this because it's it's a reality. And I think that people need to put this cruel reality in perspective on how is that so many of us are living in the United States for so long and we're still undocumented. Right? We're still living a life that it's with so many restrictions in a country that needs us and that is proven that needs us. So I came to this country because I was reuniting my family, my two little sisters. My dad died. My dad passed away. My mom had to migrate over here. We're six kids. We're spread out. Then years later, my two little sisters, seven years later, seven years without seeing my mom, 
my two little sisters are getting to an age where they want to be with my mom. We tried to get a visa, but it's impossible. It's impossible. We're from Guerrero. We look like this. We never had a bank account, you know, like all of those things. Yeah. The easiest thing was to cross the border without documents. So we did, you know, we took the bus, which was not fun. The decision of coming here, it was not fun. It was never like, oh my God, we're going to the United States. It was not that. It was never fun. It was never happy. It was never like, oh, finally an opportunity. It was not that. It was really devastating. It was really breaking up with so much in Mexico, you know, families, friends, future, everything. And we came here, you know, we crossed the border. We went through the river and we went through the desert. We walked. We made it with ah, everything, you know, whatever you can see on, on documentaries. We went through that. We made it all the way to Chicago and going to school. This is before DACA. So I'm a generation before DACA. I'm a generation after the immigration reform that happens, I think, in the 90s or 80s. I don't even know. I'm that block in the middle that, yeah, nobody really cares about it you know that so we me going to college it was it took me so long you know it took me n- almost 10 years it's nine years a few months and few months to graduate from college because i didn't have any documents and i didn't have any way to to get any money any support so i needed to go to school and work at the same time and it, this was challenging even for my family you know it was really nerve-wracking for my mom because she felt like I was wasting my time. She was like, you are undocumented. You need to get a job in a factory. Stay there so every year you can get a raise. And this was safety. It was, it was love. You know, she wanted me to be okay. She thought like, what are you going to do with school? You know, what? and she was right. You know, look at me years later. Yeah. I went to school. I had the opportunity to go back to Mexico to work in many other things. Life took me back to the States. You know, I had to come back. So in the personal note, it's just, uh, I, I got divorced. But my kid, you know, my I could not live without my kids. And the only way for me to reunite again with my kids was to cross the border again. And so I did. Because, oh my God, I don't know, you have kids, but I cannot. I do. If, if they're little, they yeah. need me. I cannot go through a day without them. So I have to, I came back and I knew when I came back, I even got sick, like physically sick because I knew this is going to be a change in my life. You know, I'm going to be probably again, I working in a factory and there's nothing wrong with that, but dang it, I want to do more things, you know? And this is what it means to be undocumented. When you are undocumented, it's really difficult to get a job for example. And if you get a job, it's really difficult to get health care. Yeah. Anything, any kind of care is so difficult. It's a struggle every day. You know, it's just not every day. It's a struggle there that you learn. Like the struggle is there, but uh, I see my people, I see myself as giants. We have overcome so much that we are capable of creating. I have a video where I say, just give me an opportunity. Just give me a little space. And with that little space that you give, you will give me, I will create a forest. I will create a jungle. You know, I will create an ocean with that. That's all I need. Just a little tiny opportunity. And that's what I've been doing. That's what we do. You know, that's why you see 
so many of us from Mexico, Central America that come over here. And even though it's difficult in here, we are able to, you know, create a better life for ourselves because we are very strong people. We come from people that, you know, rebelled against against slave masters. They rebel against colonizers. They try to preserve their culture. They try to preserve their families and the structure of the, the social structure that they they were living in. And we have that in us. You know, we inherit the trauma, but we also inherit the superpowers. Amen. You know, those are not gone. We also inherit the way of healing ourselves. You know, and to me, going to school, doing it this way, the hard way, if you want to, it was also a way to prove to the white men that you can put me in the middle of your world and I will succeed in a way. You can touch, touch my hands on the back and I will be still shining anyway. You know, you can put all the berries around me and whatever you want. For some reason, they don't matter. I don't know how, but they don't matter. I know I'm undocumented and I know I'm saying it, I'm saying it loud and I'm saying it clear. Yep. I know some people might hate it. I know some people might come after me. But man, there's a lot of people that support me anyway. There's a lot of people that come and help me. You know, I'm grateful for that. I'm always grateful for the opportunities because my opportunities only only come, you know, through people that I know, to people that knows me, to people that knows my capacity and my talents and my honesty that is not reflected in legal or undocumented status that political government might want to give you. Now, hey, hey, listen, if anybody has seen your your work, whether it's in the documentaries or the the content and the way you bring history to life, I mean, you are one of the people who is really, really bringing history and culture to life. I mean, you have a tremendous talent. Documented, undocumented is a legal status that has zero to do with a person's humanity or capability. And I appreciate your resilience in, in that. I do want to ask, though, where did you, is there someone in your family who has the talent for storytelling? I mean, you really have, clearly you've been to school and sort of, I'm assuming some technical things are able to come together in your presentation and being a filmmaker, but does your family have a storytelling tradition or where did you sort of develop that skill? Oh, that was, that has been my position in the family. You know, uh, I'm capable of telling stories. I don't know. I just remember things. I've always been passionate about stories. I've always been, I've been reading. I mean, I remember being like six, seven years old, no, seven or eight years old and taking the, in Mexico, we needed to go to another town. So you would take a little truck that would go from town to town. And I remember going to other towns and just asking for, like, is there a library here? Is there a bookstore over here? We're reading whatever I could. I read 1984 when I was 11 years old in my hometown. I don't know how is that I found it from George Orwell. It impacted me. And, and I asked a lot of questions to my family, you know. And I'm lucky because I'm, I've always been that person for my family. I've always been the one that tells, like, I remember this about my dad, but I also remember how it happened. You know, somebody asked me just recently, do, do you remember when your dad passed away? And I was like, 
everything. I remember the days before. I remember during everything. And I remember after. You know, I just, I remember. I'm also, like, I teach in a museum here with, sometimes with young people, sometimes with people over 30 years old. I don't know, just telling stories is, it's a passion of mine, I think. Well, yeah, and it clearly comes out. And I, you know, as you were talking, I went to a quote from Frederick Douglass, and he says, you know, the more I read, the more I was led to abhor and detest slavery. And, you know, one of the things that I try to get across to adults, young people, what have you, is that reading and absorbing information automatically takes you out of your station. So when you talked about being documented or undocumented or being if you're in the United States and being living in poverty or whatever, opening your mind to knowledge, there's a reason why some communities have several libraries and pristine schools or what have you, because they're developing people to be their best. And there's a a whole nother reason as to why it doesn't happen on on other ends. But I say, man, you got to take advantage of of that yourself. And it clearly, clearly shows through your work. You started or we started this conversation as we sort of come to to the end and talking about in Veracruz and in Wakaka. I hope, did I pronounce that correctly this time? I hope I did. Almost, almost. <laughs> I'm going to work on it. And, and, you know, as we talk, my daughter actually worked in a clinic as an intern. She worked in a health clinic in Wakaka. I said, Wakaka. Wakaka. You got it right there. Yeah. And so you talked about the blending of the food, right? And how sort of the Afro and indigenous shows up there and that people, it wasn't that the African way of doing it was better or the indigenous, but they just worked together to create these dishes. What opportunities in 2022 do black and brown people have to work together? How can we work together and understand each other better and and, and be more be friendlier and be more, uh, support each other more. Yeah, I think that, that one of the things that we really need is to understand the struggle of each other and the, the, the way we see things from each perspective to recognize that colonization has not been an act of love. It was never implemented with care for the human person, that it damaged us deeply, that there's been also a system implemented with the sole purpose of distancing us, separating us through films, through books, through stories, you know, that tell us like, oh, be fearful of that person. Oh, look at those those people are doing this, you know. Within reality, we are a different different kind of people, you know. That we need to recognize that that even today, for example, some of our brown brothers and sisters are living a, a confrontational reality with, with black communities in some areas, in small proportions. I believe in, this, it's in small proportions, but it does affect the narrative. It goes into the big thing, that, you know, like, oh, you see, I saw a movie where they did this, you know, and then it becomes like a standard. That's how they are. And we need to understand that that's how they are is colonized mentality. 
Yeah. And, and that we need to also be, take care of with love of each other because we've been hurt physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially. We've been hurt so much. And we've been told so many times, it's because of them. Oh, it's because of them. Oh, no, look how they don't care. Oh, look how lazy they are. Oh, look like whatever. You know, it's, it's a fake narrative that we really need to first understand it as a fake narrative and second, realizing who we are. Looking at uh, uh, history, seeing how we mix, see how we became who, who we are right now today in this continent, you know, in, in how is that we're thriving in, in Brazil, for example? How is that we're thriving in the Dominican Republic that is still, you know, they have a different vision of, of who they are. How is that we're thriving in Cuba? You know, how is that we're thriving in Mexico? You know, we need to see that. We need to see how easy and simple has been the, 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 the relationship between black and brown. Between black and brown is with the same thing. So we need to talk a lot more about those examples of unity, those good examples of like how is that we became who we are, that we are not, I'm not African, I'm not Mexican, I'm Afro-Mexican. It's, it's, and it's both of us, you know, colliding and being compliant with each other and flourishing, you know. Unity only brings the spring flowers for each other you know so it's, it's, it's realizing that because we've given a lot of noises to i've given a lot of attention to to noises and we need to recognize them as noise and we need to recognize who we are in history we have a lot of examples of great success when working together yeah listen i want to thank you for that and i think everything that you said and i really i took some time and wrote that, that colonization was not an act of love. I am going to repeat that. I will always say that Abad Labor is the one that I heard it from first, or <laughs> he came up with it, but that is a great, 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 great and important thing to understand is that this was not done to make you feel better or to empower you. We're going to have to fight for that empowerment. And I will point my audience to a bit of history in the colony of Virginia. This is in the 1600s is Bacon's rebellion of when there was black slaves, black African slaves, black African indentured people, Irish indentured people, Scottish indentured people. It were people of all races who were doing indentured service. And the English colonists were not letting people out of their indentured indenture to, they would extend it. So if it's supposed to be three years, it gets extended to five or it gets to five to seven, or you're never going to have it, or people wouldn't get the land. And Black people, Irish people, Scottish people all got together and rebelled. It was a violent rebellion. The English government sent over instructions of, well, break it up, start treating them differently, make the white people higher. And then that's when sort of in the America, slavery began to come through the mother of the of black women and sort of in perpetual, what have you. And so saying that to say, definitely at the beginning of, of the Trump cycle and sort of build the wall, there even you could hear even black people saying, yeah, they come and taking jobs. Nobody's taking any job from anybody. People are everybody's just trying to work. And so that that narrative of of when there is unity of then causing dissension is is a very old one. So 
thank you for that. And I really appreciate your voice in this. Let me ask you two things as we begin to, to wrap up. And we really, really appreciate your time. About what does it mean to live well? Oh, to me, uh, living well, I think that is is having time for leisure to do nothing, to rest. But to get to that point, like you need to cover many other things, you know, your financial situation, what's in occupying your mind all the time. One of the journeys that all of these things took me into, I was always wondering who would I be if I didn't have any influence from anybody. It was just nature raising me. And this took me to my own people, my indigenous side. My indigenous side is the Yope people, is Y-O-P-E. We don't know much about them. This is recent researches that I also uh, read and, and participated in. But Jope, what it means is the new, is this moment, is the fresh, is the the present. And the main deity for the Jope people was this god Shipetotek. And Shipetotek means the same thing, you know, is is the spring, is the new, is is what is being born. Is you always brand new? It, what the meaning behind this is. You see a deer running through a, a, a freeway, and then you come in with your car, and you're about to run him over, and the deer stops and jumps into you know the, the side of the road and keeps on running. And you're driving, and you feel like, oh my god, you know I almost killed this deer, and you keep on, and you like you probably break over there and just stop because you need to calm yourself down, and you're like, oh my god, what happened? You look through the the the, the mirror, and you can see the deer just eating chilling while we are like here, you know, so yope means being like a deer, be in the moment, be in the right now. There's a lot of things that go into our mind. And I think that there's a lot of times that we leave things in our mind. And sometimes it can be tiring, you know, like getting all of these narratives or all of these stories and all of these fake stories many times, you know, and Understanding this notion of, of my own people, my indigenous side, was so healing because it was a really indicator that this is something that I needed to do, is to be present. I went through years of anxiety and almost kind of like panic attacks or uh, visual uh, hallucinations. And it was the stress, you know, the stress of being undocumented, being Afro-Mexican because you're treated by the police in a certain way. But if, if you tell so another Mexican, they just, they don't understand it. I don't know why. And, uh, you're treated by Mexicans in a different way. You know, this is all of these things just mount out to, to, to your present reality and it makes you not be here, not being present, makes you the driver that is still thinking about the deer and, oh my God, how scary, scary that was. And instead of being the deer, it takes a lot. But I think that that's what it, need, it needs to happen for any one of us to, to live well, to get to a point where you can actually enjoy or knowing, understanding the, the, the value of having time for yourself, not being part of this capitalistic society, you know, not being part of like that you need to buy something new, you need to get something new, you need to get, I don't know, 
if, if, if there is something that I've learned through my story is that being yourself, recognizing who you are, going in, into your own story, it gives you so many tools to validate yourself, to understand, you know, that you are important, you are valuable. And there's a lot of things that are wrong with society today because this is a society that is based on colonialism. This is a society that is based on slave trade, human trade. You know, this is a society that is based on that. So if you feel like there's, there's, it is a lot, it is a lot. Yeah. It is a lot. lot. And and how is that we're going to solve it? I don't know, but the, the, somebody told me many years ago that the best thing that you can do for you for your for you uh, your people is to heal yourself. That will make you understand so many other things and to make you like approach things in in different ways. You know, you and I as men, the only emotion sometimes that is allowed for 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 men like us is angriness. You know, it's being anger, and we sometimes express frustration through angriness insecurity through angriness, sadness by being angry, you know, and, and it's, it's a condition. It's a, it's, a, it's a colonial condition that is sometimes difficult to understand, but, I, but it's really, you know, being present in this moment, being present on, with your thoughts on, on this moment, grounding yourself in what you are living right now, it helps a lot because it helps you quiet the mind and then it helps you to understand that you're valuable, man. That you're valuable, and that you're worth it, and that you have a lot of people that that wants you to be okay. That's awesome. You said Yope, Yope. Spell it. Spell it again. Y O P E. Last question, and you know the parlay and all blue. We love Afro music, the blues, jazz, and what have you. And you are someone who who understands the world through that lens. If there are sort of five sort of musical artists, acts from across the diaspora, who are your sort of five acts that you would say, check these people out and that will help you with your geope or enjoyment or understanding the world or who you like? I would recommend you. There's a, there's a band, but it's really hard to find. It's called uh, Nawakali. Is Grupo Nahuacali. Grupo, Grupo means band. G-R-U-P-O. That's Grupo. And then the okay. name is Nahuacali. Is N as in Nancy. A as in Apple. H-U-C. Let us see. A as in Apple. L-L-I. Okay. That is a band. From long time ago, from like probably the forties or fifties, and it's an indigenous band that sings music. Because the lyrics describe the life of black people in Mexico back in the day. So it's a really nice. I think that there's some recordings on YouTube, and if you're gonna listen to one of the songs, you should listen to. Uh, El Toro Rabón. I don't know how you translate Rabón, but it's El Toro, the bull. Okay. The bull without a tail, I think, something like that. Amazing. That You're going to hear indigenous people narrating black history, basically, and in a beautiful way, in a really beautiful way. I love those people. There's also Coyuca dos Mil. This is more like when I was younger. 
they play cumbia, cumbia, and uh, that kind of like Afro beats kind of things. And this is a band that we never knew that they were black until recently. Now the pictures are coming up. And it's like what the yeah. you know the Afro, the whole thing. We never knew. Like I don't know. It's a different different state of mind. I think. But there's also, if you want to listen to somebody from today that is amazing, it's Toto. Toto La Momposina. That's T-O-T-O. And then uh, if you just put Toto from Colombia, okay. this, ama- this an- woman is amazing, amazing. She represents a lot of the Afro culture from Central America, I believe. And then there's uh, the, the Palenque band. It's just called Palenque. They are also from Colombia, and these are black people that are doing amazing things today. By the way, Palenque, Colombia is very different than Yanga in Veracruz. But Palenque, Colombia was, Yanga in Veracruz was completely mixed. It got all mixed up later and uh, with indigenous and uh, other races that came. Palenque in Colombia was completely black, and it's still black. Have you been there to, to Palenque and Colombia? No. Yeah, I, I had a chance to go there. I had a chance oh. to go there. Really, it, it was one of the best days. Of, it, was, it was a great day in terms of one of my best travel days of, of visiting Palenque. But I didn't know that that band, though. That's great. And also, you know, that a friend of mine uh, went there and he said that they have a little recreation of how Palenque would look like when, when the slaves were first escaping. Yeah. And my friend did this. He's also Afro-Mexican. And he went there and he said, you know what I did? I went away from the from that side. And I started running through the through the field with the camera. And I saw his video where he's running through the field. Like he said, I wanted to feel what it felt like for those people to go through the jungle and then find that place, you know, like... <gasps> I, I've, I've asked my friend to to publish this video because he's running through it, and as he's running through it, he starts crying. And then when he gets to the auto, oh, when wow. he finally gets to what Palenque was, oh my god! You, I thought that's an amazing exercise for anybody. You know, he was really thankful, really grateful. He said, "You can feel the energy. You can feel. You can hear the voices. You can." feel like the freedom that this meant, you know, that how big it was, how huge it was for people to go running, 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 and then I made it. It's the same thing that's us crossing the border to the United States. It's not because we're going to be free here. It's just because we've been promised that we might have a better chance in here, you know? So that's an amazing experience. And whoever goes to Palenque or anything or, or back when enslaved Africans were leaving Texas to get to Mexico because Mexico didn't have slavery. I mean, it's, 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 it's ironic you say coming this way. People don't know that black people used to cross the border to go to the Underground Railroad went to Mexico as, as well. Well, listen, Abad, I want to say thank you. Thank you so much and wish you all the absolute best in terms of the work you're doing and I can tell that really, I believe that you are at the beginning of a very powerful journey 
and that your work in, in filmmaking and your storytelling is going to really is already having a big impact already. And I, 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 I honestly believe that it is only going to grow. So every minute of your time has been appreciated in doing this. And I really appreciate it. And I'm going to tell everyone, wh- where can they follow you on TikTok? What's your handle? My handle name is, is, is my hometown. It's Tequanapa. Okay. It's a little bit different. I wasn't planning on... Yeah. I didn't think it was something was going to happen. So You weren't planning <laughs> on being famous. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't right. planning on being interviewed by you. You know, I yeah, wouldn't know. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's your name. That's right. Well, we really appreciate it. And uh, I would encourage everybody to check it out. I'm saying bye to everyone else, but you see that button. Don't leave. I want to say a proper goodbye to you, everyone else. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we appreciate you on the Parlay in All Blue. Bye. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher, wherever you receive your podcast. You can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us, or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.